Welcome to this week's Parsha Shir for Parshas Noach and we're going to be looking at uh, Mikdash HaLevi, my grandfather's beautiful Sefer. Such wonderful ideas presented in this Sefer. We've been looking at it for the last few months. We'll continue to look at it over the next few months um, whenever we can to see what we can glean from his wonderful commentary on the weekly Parsha. We begin this week, Parshas Noach, by Yomer Lekim Noach, Kate's Kolbosa Bolofonai. God said to Noach, he said, the end of all flesh has come before me. This is the end of mankind. The world is full of iniquity, of thievery, of swindling. I am going to destroy the world. And the Medrash says, quoted here in Mikdash HaLevi, to Medrash and Bereshis Rabbah. The Medrash is presented with not one but two problems, uh, and it's going to use the answer to one as the way to answer the other. The problem is that the word Chomos is not a regular word that one uses. Uh, of course, so we're now right at the beginning of the Torah, but in classical Hebrew, talking about uh, thievery, iniquity, or anything like that, we talk about Gezel, we talk about Geneva. The word chomos is an unusual word, so the Medrash is going to use that as the key of trying to find a way to understand a much bigger question. Why is it that God felt the need to destroy mankind? What was it that they did which was so unforgivable, um, which for which they simply couldn't repent, or if they were able to repent, they never did, but it seems that God was going to exact justice against humanity on the basis of Hamas and that that was something which was so unforgivable that the harsh justice that God was going to mete out was justified. Let's look at what the Medrash says. What's the difference between Hamas, the word Hamas, and Gezel, which is the word that we are familiar with, which, which talks about swindling, which means swindling, thievery, our Chanina responds, Chamas eno sheva pruta. That when you steal something that's less than the value of a penny, pruta is the lowest denomination coin that existed in biblical times. People who steal less than less than the value of a penny, that's not called stealing. It doesn't have the um, legal ramifications and implications of theft, and therefore it's called chamas. It's wrong, but it's not illegal. The gezel sheshove pruta, and stealing is if you steal something that's of greater value than a penny of the smallest denomination, the smallest amount. In other words, it has some level of significance. What did the people who lived in the Durha Mabal do in that flood generation? What was it that they did that was so bad? They'll bring out a bag of produce or product, whatever it was that they had, and they would leave it outdoors. I mean, I don't know why they would do this a second time, but it seems that it was common practice in those days for people to walk past other people's property and just nab a little bit of it. Not enough that they could be arrested for having committed a crime, 
they hadn't done anything that was wrong, as it were, legally. Nevertheless, they had taken something. And slowly but surely, through taking little pieces from the bag of produce and product, whatever it was, the person who owned it was left with nothing. I don't know if you've ever seen as a, um, a wildlife documentary about piranha fish. The way that the piranhas eat their prey is by just biting little chunks of it. Slowly but surely, when it's such a frenzy, there's so many piranhas that the that the uh, prey, whatever it is, will um, will very quickly um, be left with nothing and will be destroyed. But ultimately, each piranha could say, "Well, I only took a little bit, I only bit a little chunk out of it." But the feeding frenzy, which is uh, so we are so familiar with with piranhas, is exactly what was going on in the Doha Mabel that each person would take a little bit, but ultimately the result was that the person who owned the product was left with nothing. The sack was empty. This fellow would come along and say, I'm just only taking a little bit, I'm not taking that much. I'm only taking a very small amount, it's not significant, therefore it's not stealing. And the point is that they could never be held up in front of the law, no one could arrest them, they hadn't committed a crime, and they had done, as it were, nothing wrong. So Kodesh HaKodesh Baruch said to Noach, or to them, Omalohem HaKodesh Baruch HaKodesh Baruch said to the Dor HaMabal, What you have done, I mean, the truth is, what is it? Um, you've done nothing wrong, but ultimately it's so destructive. Afani so I'm going to do something with you, which is, you know, I mean, I can justify myself. I don't have to, I don't have to defend myself. You, what you have done is not, as it were, to be considered wrong. Well, therefore, what I'm doing as well, it's outside the bounds of the law. Therefore, you can't hold me up as having done anything wrong. God felt entirely justified destroying the world on the basis that the world was so corrupt. And that's really what the word homos means. The world world was so corrupt. Humanity had become so corrupted and they were able to justify anything that they did because they felt that what they were doing was so insignificant that even though the results were a disaster, they could hold their hands up and say, we are entirely innocent of any accusation of wrongdoing. Says the Mikdash HaLevi, If we really want to understand the depth of their sin, what they were doing that was so bad, and to understand why it is that God enacted this terrible punishment against the generation of the flood. If we look at this Medrash, we can truly understand the depth of the sin and why it is it required such a dreadful punishment, the utter annihilation of that generation. Because had the Durhamabal been guilty of having stolen a Shove Pruta, something which was had a, a value of significance. We could imagine to ourselves, we could, I mean, it's possible, it's entirely possible to contemplate that over the course of time, sooner or later, that they would think about what they had done. And they would see that they'd done something wrong. Ultimately, they would see that what they had done was wrong. And then 
what's the result? When somebody feels guilty because they've done something wrong, they'll think, how can I rehabilitate myself? And they'll do teshuva, they'll repent. They would return that which they had stolen. And uh, they would they would make up with the person and they would somehow reconcile with the situation. There would be a process of rehabilitation that would be possible because they'd recognize the gravity of their sin. But if you steal nothing, you steal something that you, in your eyes has no value. Therefore, and according to the strict letter of the law, they don't have to return it. I mean, after all, if I steal something that has no value, why should I bother returning it? Because the other person shouldn't miss it in the first place. And they could think of themselves continuously as being righteous and as having done nothing wrong. We're very good people. We haven't stolen. We're not thieves. We've done nothing wrong. Their entire approach to this matter would be, what have we done already? What's the big deal? Why are you looking at us with those evil eyes? We've done nothing wrong. Let's, let's uh, face reality. If you think you've done nothing wrong, you're never going to repent. You're never going to feel the need for rehabilitation. You're just going to think that you're perfect. A person who thinks that they're perfect is never ever going to consider their actions or reflect on what they have done and therefore there's absolutely no hope there's no path to uh, changing their ways and to uh, to rehabilitating them and to making sure that they come back and be good people because they've repented therefore God decided on that basis these are people who consider themselves to be so perfect and so wonderful. There's no chance that they're ever going to actually rehabilitate themselves through a process of tshuva. It's never going to happen. This generation of the mabal are doomed. He recognized that ultimately it was inevitable that they would never do tshuva. That tshuva would never happen. Their sin was at this uh, it, this sort of funny situation um, that there was absolutely no hope of doing Teshuvah and the fact is we know that Noach lived for 120 years from the time that God first gave him the instru- instruction to build the Teva he grew mighty uh, cedar trees from which he cut the wood and from which he constructed the Teva single-handedly it took him 120 years and at no point during that period of time did any of the people who considered them or who were living in that time who must have asked him why are you building this table and he told them it was going to be a flood not one of them ever did teshuva so we see that the the opportunity to do teshuva was there they had the time to do teshuva but they never did it because they never thought that they had done something wrong <laughs> God wanted to, to uh, put, put the judgment against them immediately. He didn't put them to trial. He didn't uh, give them an opportunity, at least not directly. He gave them an indirect opportunity. But he didn't give them a direct opportunity to respond to the accusation and to try and repent. 
and he brought the mubble to wipe out that generation of evildoers because there was absolutely no hope for them to be rehabilitated. And this my grandfather uses to explain a very puzzling Mishnah, a Mishnah that we've all learnt in Baba Metziah. It's in Daf Mem Dalad Omad Aleph. It says, Omru, there's a case, two cases in the Mishnah. The Mishnah brings two cases of a deal that is rescinded by one of the sides, by the person who's the purchaser. Somebody comes to uh, um, uh, whoever the vendor may be and says, I'd like to purchase this product. And he takes the product, uh, but he doesn't pay. And later on, he gives the product back, despite the fact that the person has a no-return policy and says, I'm not paying you for the product. That person is liable and he can't do it. It's absolutely against um, the civil laws that uh, Baba Matia discusses. If you enter into a transaction and you actually obtain the product, you can't assume that the vendor is going to take it back. In fact, the vendor has every right to refuse to take it back and demand the money. If it goes to court, the vendor will be found um, to be that the money is owed to him and you would have to pay. But in a situation where the person has paid for the product but hasn't yet received it, it's still in transit. And later on, he changes his mind. He shook hands on it. He said, yes, I'm going to buy it. He gave the money to the vendor, but the vendor didn't actually give him the product yet. The Mishnah says in that situation, there's no transaction and he can um, receive uh, um, his money back. He must receive his money back. And if the vendor doesn't want to give him the money back, you go to court, you go to a basin. The basin will insist that the money goes back to the person who should have been the purchaser, but has changed his mind. However, the Mishnah then adds a very scary warning. He, God, in other words, who enacted judgment, who gave a good payment, as it were, to the Durhamabal, to the generation of the flood and the generation of the of the building of the Tower of Bovel. You know what? Who He is going to um, also give judgment, stand in judgment, and take payment from a person who said that he was going to buy something and changed his mind and gave the money back, uh, or demanded the money back. That God insists that a person who gives their word, shakes hands on something, agrees to a deal, and then goes back on it, that person is a bad person, even though in the strict letter of the law, within the strict letter of the law, they've done nothing wrong, God is going to hold them to judgment, and they're not going to be too comfortable as a result of it. And I'm not going to go into the Gomorrah there, but it's an extremely strange analogy to use. The analogy here that's used is the Durhamabal, God who punished the generation of the flood is somehow going to punish somebody who doesn't stand by their word. What is the comparison? How can we put in this in the you know some type of correlation between the many, many sins committed by the generation of the Mabel? To the sin of somebody and sin, it's not even a sin that has any kind of financial implications, but the sin of somebody who doesn't keep to their word. How can we compare the two? These were people who were thieves. These were people who were corrupt. That's what the word chomas means. 
why would we compare um, the Dor HaMabal to somebody that doesn't stand by their word? That's the question on that Mishnah. Of course, the Mikdash Alevi is not the only one who asks it, but he offers a beautiful interpretation and explanation. Ulam al-Piham is From that which we have used as an explanation of this Medrash, of the Shoveh Prutos situation, Hadvarim Nifloim, we have a wonderful interpretation that we can offer here, that we can understand the Mishnah Babatziah Daf Mendalet. Shekem Medubra Kam B'misha Choyze Bo'i V'mokoim Sh'al Piyadin I'efsha L'chafoysoi La'amoid B'dibure We have here a situation where somebody has done something wrong, but there's absolutely no way to enforce any action against him to make sure that they do the right thing. They've, they've given the money, but they don't have the product. So legally speaking, they can demand the money back and say, we don't want to buy the product. They've not done anything wrong. However, the person who's given the money and hasn't received the product might very well say, excuse me, I've done nothing wrong. What have I done wrong? I paid for something. I didn't yet receive it. I want my money back. And that person will think, I'm entirely justified, I'm a wonderful person, I've done nothing wrong, I'm certainly not a criminal. That's what they'll think. Such a person is like the B'nai Dor Hamabal, he's like the children of the generation of the flood, who are so far away from repentance. They have no concept of the wrongness of what they have done. Come on. You're a person who should be totally, should have total integrity. You walk past somebody else's property and you just take it. Okay, so you say to yourself, uh, it's no big deal. They're not going to miss it. What are you talking about? If everybody thought like you, then they'd have nothing left. That's exactly what the Medrash says. Everybody thought like the first person, from the first person to the last person, and the guy with the product was left with absolutely nothing. So too with a person who goes back on their word, who says no transaction has occurred because I never received the product, and says to the vendor, I want my money back. Yes, if everybody behaved, everybody behaved your way, People would not be able to conduct business and society would collapse. You have to be able to rely on somebody's word that if they say they're going to do something, that that indeed is what they are going to do. The person who takes the money back and hasn't received the product thinks they're wonderful. I've done nothing wrong. I paid for something. I didn't get it. I want my money back. Let's be honest. That person doesn't believe for one second that he's done anything wrong, and therefore he's not going to do teshuva. On that basis, what they've done is so terribly wrong. It increases the wrongness of what they've done sevenfold. That's why the Mishnah says, even though from in a matter of law, if we were going to look at this from a legal perspective, that person has done nothing wrong. God is going to enact judgment against them, just like he did against the Dor HaMabal, who could quite honestly say they had done nothing legally wrong. Sometimes you can be legally correct, but morally you are repugnant. And that was the story with the Dor HaMabal, with a generation of the flood. The next Torah, Vayas Noach Kechoyra Shetziva Yisraelachim Kein Asa. 
Noach did everything that God asked him to do, and that's exactly what he did. Says the Mikdash HaLevi, um, we really need to get an understanding here of what's going on. Why is it repeated twice? He did everything God asked him to do. That's what he did. Of course, Cain Asa. He did what everything that God had told him to do. Why does it need to be repeated? If Nach did that which God had instructed him to do, then the last two per- words of the Pasuk are superfluous. Why does it need to be repeated again that Nach had done everything? Of course he did everything. It says so at the beginning of the Pasuk. And perhaps we can answer this question from a Rashi that we have in Vayikra, the Vayikra Pechof, uh, Posuk Chofvav, actually it's taken from a Medrash, uh, it's uh, uh, the Medrash on Vayikra, quotes Rabbi Loza ben Azaria, who says, A person should never say that I cannot stand, I mean, I'm totally repulsed by bacon, by pork, by the meat that comes from a pig, from swine. I I would never want to wear a mixture of wool and linen, kalayim, what we call shatnays. I don't want to wear that. It's disgusting. It makes me feel sick. I would never do that. Avoyoma efshi should say I want to do it. Actually, I quite like the idea of eating a pork chop or eating bacon in the morning with my breakfast. But what should I do? The Lord in heaven, God, has decreed that I'm not allowed to eat that meat. I'm not allowed to wear shatnays. That's the way you need to think. You shouldn't be thinking, I mustn't do it, it's disgusting, it's disgraceful. We learned in the Posuk that I will separate you from the, from the nations, that you're going to be mine. That's what God says. You're the chosen nation, you're going to be separate, you're going to be elevated, you're going to be different, however you're going to interpret that. That which you have been separated from them is in my name and for my name and for my glory. So that you are separated from sin. And a person who is part of the chosen nation needs to accept upon themselves the burden uh, or the yoke of the uh, kingdom of heaven. And from this we can learn, from this unbelievable Rashi that quotes Torah's Kernim in Vayikra, we can learn a foundational principle about Judaism. This is so important. It's central to who we are as Jews. It's not sufficient for us to observe mitzvahs just for themselves so that we have checked a box in the uh, checklist of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, the 613 or however many mitzvahs it is that are relevant to us from the Torah. You have to do mitzvahs for the sake of heaven because you believe in Hashem, because you have faith in God. You mustn't keep a mitzvah simply because you can know the reason why a mitzvah must be observed. And by the way, we don't necessarily know why we're not able to eat pork meat. We don't know the reason, but let's say you would know the reason. That is not sufficient purpose for the mitzvah. That doesn't underscore the mitzvah. That doesn't give any real, true meaning to the observance of 
that mitzvah. The reason why we keep a mitzvah is because God instructed us to do so. That is it, nothing more. That should, is what should animate us. From this we could say, that the Torah, the Holy Torah, is is seeking from us to learn. Despite the fact, in spite of the fact, that the reason the Teva was being built was because Noach should be saved, to rescue him from the flood waters of the flood. Be clear, that's not the reason why he built the Teva. Of course he wanted to save himself, but the reason he built the Teva was totally different. Because that would have been just to do it for a personal reason. The reason he observed the mitzvah says the posuk. That's what it means. He did it because God commanded him to do it. Yes, the outcome of that was that he had a better life, or he was able to live, because he would have died along with the rest of the generation of the flood. But ultimately, the reason he built the teva uh, was because. Uh, he wanted to honor and obey the word of Hashem. That which the posuk, the verse at the beginning of the parsha, doubles up on the language of Asiya and says Vayas, and then it says Hamusk Why did it? Why does it say again Kain Osa? That's what he did because it's underscoring the beginning of the posuk it underlines it emboldens it, it makes it bold it makes it stick out the reason he did it was because that's what god asked him to do he wanted to carry out the commandment and the instruction to discharge his duty as someone who wanted to honor the word of god God had asked him and instructed him to build a teva, and that's why he did it. There were no other considerations. All other considerations may have fallen under that umbrella, but ultimately that uh, instruction was the only, or the only reason he carried that instruction out was because he was following and honoring the word of God. We can't we need to take from this a very important takeaway, a very important lesson. It's not enough that we observe mitzvahs and we pre- uh, prevent ourselves from any prohibitions that exist in the Torah that we don't do them. That's not the way we should conduct ourselves. At the very lowest level, of course, it's better to do that than not to do it. But that's not sufficient that doesn't really get to the essence of what it means to be an Evet Hashem, a servant of God. We must be totally and utterly conscious of the fact that every act that we do, anything that we hold back from doing, that we prevent ourselves from doing, we stop ourselves from doing, it can only be for one unique and special purpose. Nachas Ruach 
What beautiful words to create a nachas ruach, to give Hashem nachas. That's why we observe mitzvahs. That's why we don't do averus. Any other consideration, any other reason for doing it, even if it's something very lofty and high and, and very important. The reason we're doing it is very important. The other reason, as it were, is really important. If that's the only reason you're doing it, or if that's what motivates you, if that's what animates you, it's no good. You've made a mistake. You've misunderstood what is expected of you and what it is that you're meant to be doing. But Omnam, Hine Moitzim Onubi Gemara Masechah Shabbos. We see there's a Gemara in Masechah Shabbos, a very interesting Gemara. The Gemara says, Rabbim, that you should wash your hands before having bread. You make a bracha on the Tilas Yadayim. You should use Harehisagulal Ashiras. If you use a lot of water, if you make sure that you really pour a copious amount of water over your hands, that is something that will. Um, that God, as a result of that, you will merit a reward. What is that reward? That you will be wealthy. As The words, exact words of this Gemara are brought in the Mishnah Bura, which is the Chofetz Chaim's um, Sefer, or it's his parish on the Shulchan Aruch that is used, that is such a crucial device in helping us understand day-to-day halacha, the Mishnah Bura. Who, the, who published the Svarim at the very beginning of the 20th century. It's become a central halachic work uh, for the life, the day-to-day life of every Orthodox observant Jew. The Mishabura says, Ulam He brings this Gemara and he adds and he stresses, He says, make sure, be careful. When you wash your hands, you're using a lot of water, don't think to yourself, ah, you see how much water I use, Baruch Hashem. Hashem is going to make me a very rich person as a result of the fact that I've used so much water. If that's what you're thinking, you've missed the point completely. That becomes a transactional mitzvah. The reason you're washing your hands is because you want it to be a schooler for Ashiris, because you want to be a wealthy person, not because you want to wash your hands. That's a mistake. You should wash your hands in any event with as much water as possible to make sure you cover your hands completely with water and and uh, and it's ongoing for for a second or two. You know why you're doing it? Do you know why you're washing your hands with a lot of water? This should be the reason, because you want to worship your God with the greatest and most profound love. Yes, there's schar involved as well. There's a benefit that will come about as a result of it. But that's secondary. Don't think of that as the reason why you're doing it, because if that's what you're thinking, you've missed the point completely. That's what the Mishnah Baruch says. The Kach says the Mikdash Alevi, and similarly, That's how we re- need to... Um, relate to every single aspect of our lives. On the Trichim Losim Lev, we need to be very careful, we need to consider and reflect. We mustn't have any other motivations as the primary reason why we're doing a mitzvah. That can't be why we do mitzvahs, because then we're not doing mitzvahs because of the mitzvahs, because they're Hashem's mitzvahs. Do you know why you're doing them? You're doing them because you think it's a good thing to do. 
you've missed the point completely. Then maybe this reason or that reason why you're doing a mitzvah. This, I mean, let's take the reasons that we've spoken about or the subject we spoke about in the first Torah. You don't steal. Of course I can't steal because then society is going to collapse. People are going to steal from me. If I'm honest, then everyone's going to be honest with me and I'm going to conduct myself in business and everything's going to work out. If that's the reason you don't steal, then you've missed the point because every person from whom you don't steal is an opportunity for you have done to do a mitzvah for Hashem. You should think to yourself, yes, of course I don't want to steal. It's a terrible thing to steal and I don't want to steal. But you know what? I'm also not stealing because I want to honor Hashem's word. That's why I'm doing it. I want to make sure I carry out God's word. And my grandfather in his sefer brings a story about someone who once spoke to him. And he said to him as follows, this Jewish fellow, he's having a conversation with my grandfather. And he says to him, He says, you know why it's so wonderful that we have this opportunity and we have this instruction and we have this obligation to clean our houses properly and thoroughly before Pesach. He says, you know why I love, I love the period leading up to Pesach? Because I can find all the things that I've lost over the whole year. I always find them before Pesach. That book that I couldn't find. Half a year I've been looking for that book. Ah, we took all the books off the shelf to check for Chomets. I found my book. It was there behind something else. I didn't see it. I've lost a, an item of clothing. I've lost some thing of my, some item that was so important to me and I couldn't find it anywhere. But Baruch Hashem, we're Pesach. And now we can clean up and clear up the house. And now we know where everything is. That's what this fellow said to my grandfather. Says my grandfather. The truth is, Torah is there. It's a terrible mistake. A person who thinks that way is making a terrible mistake. When we clear up the house, we clean up the house before Pesach. Do you know what we should be thinking about? You know should we, what should be foremost in our minds? We're not meant to be thinking of spring cleaning. That's not the point. We shouldn't be thinking about how wonderful it's going to look after Pesach. You know, we cleaned up for Pesach. And after Pesach, we're going to reap the benefits and the rewards of having cleared up our house so well. That's the worst thing to think. You know what we should be thinking when we're clearing up for Pesach? Do you know why we're doing it? We want to make sure there's no chomets. We want to make sure our house is entire entirely clear clean clean and clear of any chomets that could contaminate our festival our Chag HaPesach we're doing it and to prevent ourselves from having even the smallest amount of chomets in our homes that's the second piece from the Mikdash HaLevi another beautiful piece and now we're going to go to the final piece we're going to look at today from the Mikdash HaLevi and it's a beautiful medrash it's a fascinating medrash it's a medrash in Yalkut and it's quoted in full if you look at the source sheet you'll see that the medrash is quoted in full it's in Aramaic we're going to read the parish that my grandfather includes in the main body of the text of the Dvar Torah Rabbi Seinum Chazal tell us says the Mikdash HaLevi that there was a a bit of a kerfuffle 
when the Teva opened up and was allowing in pairs of animals. The Pasuk says, Shnaim Shnaim Bo El Noyach. They came in two by two. The animals came in two by two, as the famous song goes. And at that particular moment, the, um, Noach was faced with a terrible challenge. Suddenly, the next one in line was Sheker, was lies. He said to, to Noach, uh, Mr. Noach, can you please let me into the Teva? I'd like to come inside. Ulam so you know what Noach said to him I actually I can't let you in he came up with a fantastic excuse he said you know God said to me Shnaim Shnaim Boil Noach you have to come you have to be with a partner you can't be here on your own you're here by yourself Mr. Sheker I can't let you into the Teva if you find yourself a partner I'll let you in like every other animal that came into the ark Zugais, Zugais, they all came in couples. You too, Mr. Sheker, you need to come. Is there a Mrs. Sheker? No, I'm sorry, can't let you in. If there's a Mrs. Sheker, of course, I'd be able to let you in. But because you're only Mr. Sheker and you're on your own, I'm afraid I'm going to turn you back and uh, you're not going to have a seat on this cruise. Hasheker Sheker was frantic. He went out and he looked for a partner. He realized, I need... I need someone to go in with. And he found a partner, Motza Esa Pachas. He found Pachas. Pachas could mean destruction, depreciation, tragedy. He found something very negative. And he said to, he said, Mr. Pachas, would you mind being my partner? He told him exactly what had happened to him. All the events leading up to this moment when he's standing and trying to woo Pachas to be his partner, to come on the cruise in the Teva. So, Pachas said to Sheker, well, it was, he was no fool, and he said to Sheker, excuse me, what am I going to get in exchange if I agree to go onto the Teva with you? You know, I'm not going to go for nothing. I think you need to pay me something. And Sheker thought for a moment, scratched his head, and he said, I'll tell you what, all the benefit that I gain as a result of the Sheker that I bring to the world, I'm going to give to you. It's going to be aligned with tragedy. Pachas said, that's a wonderful idea. They shook hands and off they went, arm in arm, and they presented themselves to Noyach. They said, hello, uh, Noyach, we'd like to come on the Teva. Well, he'd already made the condition. He said that they can only come in as a couple. And both of them were now with one another. And therefore, Noyach was forced to allow Sheker and Pachas onto the Teva. And you know what happened? After the Mabul, Sheker still existed in the world. And wherever Sheker is, tragedy isn't far behind. That's the message of the Medrash. They both came out together. And from then until this day, whatever it is that Sheker manages to gain, goes into the possession, into the jurisdiction of destruction of Pachas. If we wanted to say it in a slightly different way, anything that is achieved as a result of lies, 
it's not going to last it's going to be destroyed it's going to be come to nothing sheker is a prelude to disaster why because he was forced to take disaster as a partner in the lead up to the teva sailing off into the ocean and being saved from the mubble. And you know what? Shekhar can complain as much as he wants. There's nothing he can do about it. Because Shekhar promised his partner, Mr. Destruction, Mr. Pachas, that everything that he has gained as a result of Shekhar is going to give to destruction. So he's got nothing to say. I guess it's it's a fanciful Chazal, but it gives us a sense of what Chazal wants to teach us, which is, you think that Sheker comes on its own, and as a result of Sheker you're going to gain? The, um, a thief never prospers, a liar never gains, somebody who relies on dishonesty ultimately is going to have to pay the price, and this is the message that Chazal wants to teach us, and this is curious but quite cute medrash at the beginning of Parshas Noach. Elu dibre Chazal, this is what Chazal tell us. Valeim minaroi lishal she'ela atzuma, but they present us with a very strong and powerful question. Shekem edivre hamedrash mashma. From the words of the medrash, it would appear shenoyach be'emes leirotzeli kon lahachnis as hashekel ateva. Do you know what? He was no fool, noyach. He didn't want to let sheker into the teva. He said, "Excuse me, you can't come in. You don't have a Mrs. Sheker. You can't come in." And he tried to stop him. And we can understand perfectly why that would be. Why Noach in this Medrash situation would not want um, Sheker to come in. How great and wonderful our world would be. If, if Sheker didn't have any kind of foothold in the world, wouldn't that be a wonderful place? We can understand why Noach tried to prevent Sheker from coming into the Teva. That's why um, uh, was looking for an excuse to prevent Sheker from entering into the Ark. He didn't want him in there. And he, and he looked for an excuse. So he told him, sorry, you don't have a partner, therefore you can't come in. He says, you know what, if you want to come in, you've got to find a very nice partner, and then we'll let you in, because we're letting in two by twos. But then you know what happened? Sheker managed to outsmart Noach in the Medrash, and, and come back to the Teva with Pachas as his partner, and Noach, because he made that condition, is forced to honor the condition he had already made, and he's forced to allow Sheker into the Teva, and the rest, as they say, is history, because Sheker survived the Mabble. It makes no sense. Think about it carefully. Why did Noach have to come up with excuses? Why did he have to come up with some type of ruse as a way of not allowing the uh, sheker onto the table? Why do you have to evade and be evasive? What did he have to do that for? Why didn't he just give him straight up truth? Be blunt with him. And say to him, excuse me, 
I don't want you on the table. You can come with one partner or ten. You're not allowed on. We don't want you. We don't want Sheker in the world. Baruch Hashem, there's a mubble and you're going to be destroyed, Mr. Sheker. Why didn't he tell him that? Could Nach not have told Sheker, sorry, you're not worthy of being saved from the flood? Therefore, I'm not going to let you into the table. It's at my discretion. I don't have to let you in. Why make an excuse that was later undermined? If he would have told him once and for all, you know what? What would have happened? Shekhar could have done nothing about it. Who was in charge? Nech was in charge. Shekhar would not have got onto the Teva. He would have been left behind. There would be no Shekhar in the world. You know what the world would be like after the Mabel? It would be a perfect world. A world of truth. No sheker, but oichekashe is chamek noach bedochas hasheker b'tarnas hamutu eres b'medrash. But as a result of noach's kind of hesitance, reluctance to say the blunt thing, we don't want you. But he came up with a kind of excuse. Hitzliachu lebasovli is gabel alabayo. You know what? He managed to overcome the problem. Sheker went off and found himself a girlfriend, and he managed to come onto the table. Not just he may got into the table. He managed to have his, his partner in crime. Pachas, tragedy, disaster, terrible things. What did you do, Noyach? Why did you do that? Why did you enable Sheker to outsmart you? You could have just stopped him from coming on and that would have been it. Specifically, it's very puzzling. From all the happenings, the events that took place before the Mabel. Do you know why the Mabel happened? It happened because of all the terrible sins that that generation did. But there was 120 years that came before. Kind of, you know, he was, I wouldn't say telling them off. Uh, we know that famously Noach did not try and make any Balchuba, Balichuba, but it, clearly he was building a table. People are asking him, What are you doing? He's an old man. Why are you involved, involving yourself in destruction? Why are you building? Why are you shipbuilding? What are you doing? He's telling them, You're very bad people. God's going to destroy the world. The world's going to be destroyed. You're all going to die. Ha 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 ha. It's never going to happen. Don't be silly. What are you talking about? But there was all this going on in the years before the Mubble. Now imagine, MS would have been in the world, would have been the controlling force of the world. Of that world, the generation before the Mabel, would have been a very different place. In Sophic Bekachshe Techachose Shal Noach, that it wouldn't, there would be no doubt that the, the, the telling off that Noach would give to his generation simply by demonstrating to them that there was a potential for them to die because God was unhappy with them, because they were corrupt. And they would have listened to that, like the Anshe Ninveh. I gave a share a few weeks ago about the, the uh, Sefer Yonah, about uh, Yonah and the people who lived in Nineveh. They listened to Yonah. They did Shuva. Imagine the Dora Mabel would have done Shuva. There would never have been a Mabel. How could that have happened? If MS, if truth, was the dominant force in the world at that time. 
would grab them by the heart. They would have done teshuva. They would have returned. They would have repented from the evil of their ways. It would have prevented this terrible destruction from happening. What would have been better than a world after the Mabal that has no Sheker in it whatsoever? What could possibly have been better? A new world that has a certain future. Would never happen again that anybody would put themselves in a situation, not, not um, sing, uh, single individuals, nor groups of individuals, nor the entire world, in a situation where their destruction would be desired or possible. What could have been a better lesson achieved from the destruction of the Mabal? What do we learn from all this? What are we taking? What's the takeaway from the fact that an entire generation was destroyed? What could be better? Written in words of blood, in letters of blood. This idea that Sheker has no place in the world. That we need to live in a world that's full of MS, that is driven by MS, driven by truth, totally and utterly dominated by truth. That would have been the best takeaway from the Mabal. Sadly, that never happened. In reality, when Sheker got its foothold and managed to obtain entrance into the Teva, this amazing outcome became impossible. It's certain that from this very moment, that the Sheker managed to get himself onto the Teva, managed to stow away on the ark that Noach had built to save the remnants of humanity and animal kind. But by Sheker being allowed onto the Teva, Posu Hasikuyim Lokach She. That the reasons behind the Mabal having taken place would never dim and would never fade, they would never go away. That which led up to the Mabal was certain to reoccur. And we see it. something like that happens really quickly afterwards with the Durhafloga. And we know that uh, in the time of Avramavinu, Sodom and Amora were destroyed. And how many different episodes of destruction and of evil have occurred in the world as a result of Sheker being uh, being saved, going through this incredible experience of being saved from the Mabal as presented to us in the Medrash. All of that could have been prevented, but it wasn't, and we live in the world that we live in today. Baru Hoya Lechol Bardas would have been certain to every individual we know that the moment Sheker got its way onto the Teva, that Sheker was going to survive and it was going to cause destruction in its wake. Because after the Mabal, everybody would still be subjected to the possibilities prevented by lies. 
as beosid. Any benefit that could have been gained from the mabul was lost so soon afterwards simply because of the existence and the survival of Sheker through the mabul and into the other side. So that's the question the Mikdash Shalevi presents us with about the Medrash. It's quite a fanciful Medrash, but an interesting Chazal giving us the foundation of you know of the existence of Sheker in the world. Why would that have been the case? Why have Noah, why would Noah have given them even the slightest chance, which ultimately and perhaps inevitably resulted in the salvation of Sheker and his uh, possibility for Sheker to have survived the Mabal? We can ask the question sevenfold. Why did Noach open the door for Sheker? So that so that the Sheker that Sheker could enter into the Teva. Why didn't he just do what needed to be done? Cut the Gordian knot prevent Sheker from existing after the Mabal and it would have saved us all so much bother. He says the Mikdash Alevi, it's a profoundly important answer. It cuts to the core of Hashkofa, of our understanding what it is that God wants from us and why he has created the world in the way he has created it. Don't think that Noach was stupid. Of course he knew that a world without Sheker is going to be wonderful and marvellous. Ulam hu gam hevin tachlis. He also knew that a world without Sheker lacks in any meaning. There is no meaningful purpose in the world if Sheker doesn't exist. And he explains, We know that uh, our rabbis Chazal have taught us in the Medrash, Breshis Rabbah, the Posuk says, One of the Psukim in the creation narrative it says, in Posuk Lamed Aleph, in Perik Aleph of Breshis, that God saw everything that he'd made and it was Toiv Ma'oid, it was very good. Say Chazal in Breshis Rabbah, do you know what God is talking about that's toiv ma'oid? Zayet Sahara. This is the evil inclination. V'hainu shayet Sahara. Hu hamanik l'oilam hazes mashmusa. Do you know what gives the world its purpose? Do you know what gives the world its meaning? The existence of the yet Sahara. It's only as a result of the opportunity to do evil that when a person chooses to do good that there is any meaning in their life. And as a result of which at the end of their life we go to Shomayim and we have benefited from the results of having rejected the Yetzirah and embrace the Yetzar Atoiv. We've done what's right, and we've not done what is wrong to do. What is the most powerful weapon that the Yetzar has to influence, influence us, to make us do the wrong thing? Do you know what it is? Lies is the central theme of the Yetzirah. Because if our inclination was always going to follow truth, Baruch 
para asheloi loy made. The bottom line is, if truth is what drives us, the only thing we would do would be the correct thing. We wouldn't even be able to do something that's wrong. It wouldn't be possible. We wouldn't take any notice of the Yetzirah telling us to do the wrong thing because the Yetzirah can tell us whatever it wants to tell us and we would say, sorry, the truth is that you're wrong. I shouldn't be doing the wrong thing. I should be doing the right thing. No one would give up on the ultimate reward of the eternal benefits that are offered by doing Torah and mitzvahs. Tumuras hanoha regois, just for some fleeting, pleasant experience, which is gone in a moment. That's lies, that's sheker. No one would go for it. You would never go for such a thing. Acha sheker Sheker blinds the eyes of everyone that it gets a hold of. He creates the possibility of people to be blinded. Not to see. Not to understand. Not to know, as it were, anything. From this we can say, If there wouldn't be a Yetzirah in the world, The world would lose its purpose. The ultimate purpose of the world is only made possible through the existence of the inclination that tells us to do wrong. If it wouldn't be for the fact that we have a Yetzirah, we would just like Malochim. And therefore we wouldn't gain the Sechar, the ultimate, the eternal reward of uh, the ultimate time. And if Sheker wouldn't have been allowed to be rescued from the Mabal, in practical reality, after the mother would have been over, it wouldn't have been possible to make choices. But Sheka never survived. The world is run completely on MS. How could we ever do an Avera? How could anybody do an Avera if the MS is standing there clearly in full glow of every spotlight for us to see this is the true way this is what you should be doing and the Torah tells you to do something else who cares what you're saying I'm not listening to you I'm going to follow the true path the fact is if, if there is no bad good has no purpose good has no meaning and good is just the natural state of being and therefore we've lost the opportunity to gain benefit from doing good because it's automatic we're an autopilot good is the natural way to go that's why Noach didn't feel right about pushing away the Yetzer with both hands but Tanaki to say you know I don't want Sheker in the Teva you're not allowed in he could have done it he had the right he had the opportunity he could have done it but he didn't do it he was cleverer than that in fact Noach had not just the possibility but the obligation the duty to make sure that Sheker survived the Mabal he knew exactly what he had to do Ochein zois harevach noach bekach she sholach 
זויס הרוויח נח בכך ששולח עשה שקל לחפש לבת זוג כתנאי לכניסו סוי לטבע. What Noach did is he did something very clever. He made a tactical decision. He said, you know what, I'm not going to let him in straight away. Just allow him in. I'm going to say, if you want to come in, you have to come in with something else. And he knew that whoever the partner was that he would find, that Sheker would find, was not going to be a great benefit to Sheker. In fact, the Chovetz Chaim says something very interesting about this Medrash. He says that before the Mabal, there was no consequences for Sheker. There was never consequences for Sheker. You could lie all you wanted. And it was perfectly normal and acceptable. Society just ran on the basis of Sheker. And nobody suffered as a result of it. Anybody who lied was held in very high esteem. That was, the, that was what was going on before the Mabal. This Medrash tells us why after the Mabal, Sheker um, had a terrible tragedy by aligning itself. With tragedy. Sheker now becomes correlated with a terrible thing. Anybody who's involved in Sheker is now going to be burdened by tragedy, burdened by disaster. You know what? Some shine would be lost, some shine would fade from Sheker as a result of the fact that he has to be accompanied, and who accompanied him? Because ultimately, the one little thing that we have that's going to be standing like a Jiminy Cricket on our shoulder whenever the Yetzirah tries to get, get us to do something bad is the fact that we know you do something bad, there are consequences and they're not good consequences. They're not wonderful things that are going to happen to you as a result of being a liar. Of, being, of doing something wrong and something bad. That was as a result of this Chazal, which aligns Sheker with Pachas. This is something we need to remember constantly. The Sheker came into the Teva. And the, the battle between the two inclinations that exist uh, began and it will continue forevermore for the rest of time you should know that as a result of aligning yourself with Sheker as a result of following Sheker's advice as a result of following the Yates uh, horror's advice you will never gain a benefit forever it will always land up like a boomerang. It will come back and hit you in the face. Because its partner is always tragedy, destruction and terrible things. You'll lose everything. Your entire life will fall apart if you are closely associated and on board with lies as opposed to truth. Because Pachas um, remembers its original treaty, its pact, its deal with Sheker, that whatever gain Sheker gains, whatever um, is a benefit that has resulted from lies, Pachas will be able to swallow it up. We will leave it here for today. Thank you so much. Thank you.